Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lee McIntyre about his new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. Can we change the minds of science deniers? Encounters with flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, coronavirus uh, truthers, and others. Climate change is a hoax, and so is coronavirus. Vaccines are bad for you. These days, many of our fellow citizens reject scientific expertise and prefer ideology to facts. They are not merely uninformed, they are misinformed. They cite cherry-picked evidence, rely on fake experts, and believe conspiracy theories. How can we convince such people otherwise? How can we get them to change their minds and accept the facts when they don't believe in facts? In this book, Lee McIntyre shows that anyone can fight back against science deniers and argues that it's important to do so. Science denial can kill. McIntyre offers tools and techniques for communicating the truth and values of science emphasizing that the most important way to reach science deniers is to talk to them calmly and respectfully, to put ourselves out there and meet them face to face. Well, Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the uh, global COVID pandemic, I was wondering whether we can start by you reflecting on how has it affected you and your work? and also some maybe main takeaways that you've gathered from this experience. Well, my book is about science denial. And the main takeaway is that while I was writing this book, I witnessed a form of science denial, namely COVID denial, start uh, right as I was writing it. It was like having a lab experiment for what I was talking about right in front of me the whole time. So I hunkered down at home and I wrote this book and watched the news and saw it all going on around me. This must have been quite uncanny, isn't it? Sort of watching the whole experiment unfold in front of you. Well, what I did was I had the whole book planned out and then I had a last chapter called COVID and it wasn't written yet because nothing had happened yet. And I told my editor, um, this is going to be the final chapter of the book on COVID denial. And he said, how do you know there's going to be COVID denial? And I said, just wait. Uh, and it happened. Uh, and your work, were you able to do remote work and uh, do teach uh, classes? I, um, I I used to teach um, at the uh, Harvard Extension School uh, Ethics, and uh, I think I will teach there again. But during the pandemic, they closed down and everything was virtual. So it was just me and my research and my wife and the dogs at home. Uh, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I did my work remotely from home, yes. 
And did you manage to pick up some maybe new activities or hobbies, maybe running or walking with your dogs uh, a little bit longer? I walked. Um, I was recovering from a surgery, and so I needed to walk. And so I put on a mask and walked with the dogs every day for five miles. And then I, my hobby, I learned, uh, I've, I've played guitar since I was um, an adolescent, but I was never very good at it. And then during the pandemic, I thought, well, I'll never have another chance like this to practice. And so I practiced mm -hmm. as much as I could. And I, I'm not sure I'm that much better than I was, but I certainly enjoyed it. And it was a lot of fun and, I, and I'm still doing it now, which is good. Oh, that's the main thing is to have fun and enjoy it. <laughs> yes. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, I'm a uh, philosopher of science, and I grew up uh, in a uh, blue-collar neighborhood, a working-class neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. Uh, neither one of my parents went to college, but they were great believers in education. And so uh, we had a lot of books in the house. And I remember... Uh, one of the main books that I was interested in was a set of books, the encyclopedia. And uh, my dad always told me the encyclopedia has everything. If you just read the encyclopedia, you'll know everything. And so I would read the encyclopedia and I loved the articles about scientists and philosophers. And I guess that's where I really got the idea that, you know, this was something that was great to be, was a uh, either a scientist or a philosopher. And so I ended up many years later going into philosophy of science. So you mentioned you're a first first generation in college. And That's can you true. tell us a bit more uh, of your experiences as a first generation? Yeah, I um, I really didn't have a good education when I was in elementary school. It was a terrible neighborhood, uh, really the worst performing schools in the uh, in the city, and um, it wasn't it really until I got ready for high school that um, I went to a much, much better school for high school. It was a private school, uh, the only one in the city. And I went um, at that time and I went there on a full scholarship and I discovered just how far behind I was. I'd always been a good student in school, but that was because I hadn't really been challenged. But once I got to high school um, where, you know, the other kids had a, a lot of privilege that I didn't have, uh, I learned that I was way behind and I needed to make up. And so my entire life, since I was 14 years old, I really felt that I'm behind and I have to work twice as hard as everyone else to, uh, to make up. And so that was really the motivation for me to get through college and graduate school and, um, you know, try to um, become what I had always dreamt of being. Um, the people around me uh, growing up, uh, the, my schoolmates, um, none of them really did things that I think they ultimately wanted to do with their lives. And I wanted to see if I could break out of that. Were there any mentors along your journey that supported and inspired you? My mom. Um, when I was a little boy, uh, my mom didn't talk to us about um, uh, trivial things, uh, didn't talk to us like babies. She always talked to us uh, like we were adults and asked us what we thought. And, um, you know, if there were a problem, how we would solve the problem. And she was really the one who taught me how to think. Um, I did have mentors later in college and in graduate school. Um, but really, my first mentor was my mom, who, even though she uh, only graduated from high school, 
was a very intelligent person, as was my dad, and just you know poured everything that they had into their children and wanted us to all go to college, which we all did. Oh, that's great. That's really nice to hear that your mother inspired you and uh, really helped you along the way. She did. So you mentioned that you were really passionate about philosophy and you, which is really interesting that you already knew that you wanted to study the philosophy. So how did you get interested in history of science? Well, it, it was it was a little bit of a road because as a child, I... I didn't know, I read about philosophers, but I didn't really know what they did. And I was concerned about things like what was beyond the end of the universe and why I was me and not some other person. You know, these were the kind of things that kept me up at night worrying. And it wasn't until I got to college that I discovered that these are exactly the kind of things that philosophers are are concerned about. And it was a short hop there from back to my original interest in science. Uh, I guess, you know, studying, I was never really a a very good student at science. I I loved astronomy and originally had thought maybe I'd be an astronomer. But what I was really interested in was the story of how the scientists made their discoveries, what made them scientists, how they got interested and how they did the work that they did. So Newton, Galileo, those were all things that were just fascinating to me. So my my interest in history of science really also sort of started before college. But it was in college that I was up on the fourth floor of the main library one day uh, reading Karl Popper, Conjectures and Refutations. Um, and that was where I really decided to become a philosopher of science. And so it all came together uh, then, history of science, philosophy of science, it all really landed at the same moment because Karl Popper is concerned with this question, what is it that makes science special? And how can you tell the difference between what's science and what's not science? Uh, That's a question for the history of science, the philosophy of science, philosophy of social science. And I decided at that point that I wanted to make up my own major in college which was the comparison between natural and social science and why they were so different. And I wanted to make the social sciences more scientific. So it was really a, um, it it really just all came together that that first year in college. Um, That was, uh, I I met my wife the the first day of college. Uh, I met my mentor in college, Rich Edelstein, an economist. And I found my life's work that first year in college, too. So that was a very eventful year for me when I turned uh, 18 to 19 and found all those things at once. And were you always interested in communicating science to other people, uh, which you do very, very well in your book? Oh, thank you. At first, I was just trying to learn it for myself. It never would have occurred to me that I would be a teacher, let alone a professor. It, I mean, I wasn't even really thinking about my career at that point. But um, the family joke had always been that I would uh, grow up to uh, work at a gas station, you know, because I was never really mm-hmm. interested in reading books. I was never really interested in intellectual uh, things. And so I, I, I never, it took me a while to get past that and to realize, I guess I was about a junior or maybe even a senior, in college before Rich Edelstein said, you know, you could become a professor. And that's when I got interested in in that. And then when you're a professor, of course, you communicate with students, which is 
the same, really, as communicating with the public. Um, it's uh, I don't know why more philosophers are not interested in what's now called public philosophy, because it's real, really all the same. It's taking ideas that you're interested in and communicating them, you know, with some passion to a larger audience. And, and that's what I always like to do. So all of your passions and expertise culminated in your latest uh, book, uh, How to Talk to Your Science Denier. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yeah, um, How to Talk to a Science Denier is, uh, I've, I've written several books before this. So this book grew out of my the book that came just before it, which was called The Scientific Attitude. And in the scientific attitude, I was really concerned with that main question that philosophers of science have been concerned with for the last hundred years, which is what's so special about science? Now, philosophers of science have been obsessed with something called the problem of demarcation. This is what Karl Popper was concerned with, which was how to have some formal logical criteria, which could allow you to tell each and every time, whether something was good or bad, whether it was scientific or non-scientific. And what you begin to realize as you read in the field is, it's been a hundred years and nobody has really answered this question and maybe nobody can answer this question. And there was a paper about 30 years ago by a, a philosopher of science named Larry Loudon called The Demise of the Demarcation Problem, where he was where he said this problem really can't be solved. You'd have to come up with a an ideal set of necessary and sufficient conditions. And if we could do that, we would have done it by now. And that really was fascinating to me because I didn't want to give up the question of, well, what's okay. So does that mean that you can't answer what's special about science? Because if you can't, then that means that you can't defend science you can't defend science against pseudoscientists who are pretending to be scientists or against science deniers who are, you know, find no good reason to believe scientific results or fraud. You, you really can't defend science unless you have an account of what science is. And so I came up with this idea of the scientific attitude, which is the idea that what makes science special is that uh, scientists are concerned with evidence and they're willing to change their minds on the basis of new evidence. And that's not, I don't think, a solution to the demarcation problem, but it allowed me to come up with an account that I think allowed me to defend science because science doesn't have to follow scientific method. I don't think there is such a thing and neither did Popper. And it doesn't have to be um, perfect. It's a, a community enterprise where scientists are checking one another's work. And it's, as I say, it's an attitude, not a method, um, which means that we don't have to worry so much about scientific uncertainty or the inability to prove something in science. That's just how science works. And once I realized that, I thought, okay, now I know how to defend science. So I was out on the road um, doing book talks about scientific attitude. And I kept getting questions from my audience about, well, what can we do? You know, it was uh, Donald Trump was uh, president and people wanted to know how they could push back, uh, how they could, you know, defend facts and science. And I would always say, well, go talk to people who disagree with you. And then I started to think, well, why am I not doing more of that? 
And so I booked a ticket and I went out to the Flat Earth Convention in Denver, Colorado. And I tried to put the theory from my earlier book into action. Um, and once I did that, I was addicted because, and that's where the book, How to Talk to a Science Denier came from. Because once I had talked with flat earthers, um, it made me see that it wasn't just about having a good theory of science. It was about being able to engage people in conversation and sort of reach them where they were, which is not about presenting any facts or evidence or logic. It's about having a conversation uh, to really to listen to them about why they uh, believe what they believe. After that, I went to talk to um, uh, coal miners about climate change. And I, I read, though then by then the pandemic was happening, I couldn't go out and talk to uh, anti-vaxxers because the pandemic was raging, and let alone COVID deniers. But I got interested in this um, question of whether we could change science deniers' mind by talking to them. And that's where the book came from. So what does it mean uh, to be a science denier? Um, science deniers are people who really fundamentally misunderstand what science is. It's not just that they reject particular scientific facts, like the truth of climate change um, or the roundness of the earth. It's that they misunderstand the way that scientists reason. They misunderstand the power of evidence. So you often hear science deniers say that they're better scientists than the scientists are because they're so skeptical. You know, they, they won't believe anything unless you prove it. That to mm. me just shows that they really don't understand science. Now, what in, in practice, science deniers are usually people who have something that they want to believe passionately and science tells them that it's not true. And they decide, I don't care what science says. I'm just going to distrust the scientists. And so science denial is based on, usually on conspiracy theory, where they decide that the scientists are lying to them and that unless the scientists can prove to them that what they're saying is true, then they don't have to believe it and they can believe something else. And um, so they're, they're not actually denying all science. They're denying the science that they don't want to believe in. And here's the secret. They don't need any evidence at all for the thing they do want to believe in. That's how you know that they're not scientists. The flat earthers will say that they're, you know, they're so skeptical of the round earth. Well, they're not skeptical at all of the evidence, for, uh, be it as, as it may, for flat earth. Same thing with climate deniers. They're, it's not just that they've, they've got such high standards that they won't believe anything because they're perfectly happy to believe that climate change isn't happening uh, and they don't really need much evidence for that. So they're people who are um, not reasoning correctly. And by the way, that's the way that I approached the folks at the Flat Earth Convention. I didn't go there to present them facts I went there to talk to them about how they reasoned because I'm a philosopher, not a scientist. And I wanted to see if I could convince them by poking holes in their arguments, not in their facts. Yeah, for sure. And this is uh, really the key here that you go into the roots of the science denial as it is. So are there specific maybe characteristics that uh, unify 
most of the science deniers, or perhaps it's uh, very, very individualistic, or some people might have some alternate motives for for uh, being a science denier. Yeah, I, I, each kind of science denial is slightly different. So there's flat earth, there's evolution denial, there's anti-vax, there's climate change denial. The, these are, you know, they're different content, different topics. But and maybe the different motivations, right? If somebody works for an oil company, maybe they're a climate denier, you know, for a very particular reason, because that's where they get their paycheck, right? Um, or if somebody's a COVID denier, that might be because um, it's become a political thing in the United States. And so they, you know, they don't want to believe that COVID's true because that's maybe part of being a Republican is that they don't think that they can believe that uh, that, that COVID is a big deal. So th those, there are some motivations behind it that can differ. But there is one thing that all science deniers have in common, no matter what the topic, and that's the way that they reason. And um, this discovery was made by the Hufnagel brothers uh, years back, but it was perfected really by uh, John Cook uh, and Stephen Lewandowski and others who are uh, cognitive scientists and uh, um, you know, experts in human reasoning. And the, there's, a, there's a script, there are five tropes um, that every science denier follows, and they're this. Number one, they cherry pick evidence. Uh, they will go looking for the, the one particular fact that seems to show that they're right and the scientists are wrong, and they'll ignore the other facts. Number two, they're conspiracy theorists. Um, they tend to think without evidence that the scientists are lying to them. Uh, number three, they engage in illogical reasoning. So they will be inconsistent, for instance, and I can give you some examples if you want, but they can be inconsistent in their, uh, in their standards of reasoning or, or in what they take to be evidence. Um, number four, they rely on fake experts and they denigrate real experts. So, you know, they will say, well, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci, he's, uh, you know, he's just a, um, uh, you know, he's a fake, or, you know, he, he's in it for the money or something like that. They'll find some way to slander him, but then they'll believe somebody who's uh, a fake expert um, because that person tells them what they want to hear. And finally, number five, and this I think is very important. They believe that science has to be perfect. So what mm. I was talking about earlier with this idea of that science has to be able to prove with certainty its result. Well, that's just not how science works. But to a science denier who doesn't understand how science works, it seems that, you know, you would have to be able to prove it. Now, every scientist knows that with inductive reasoning, your theory is never perfect. I mean, there's always, this is the, the heart of scientific reasoning. There's always some future fact that can come forward that can change your theory. And for, and if you're honest, force you to give it up. Copernicus replaced Ptolemy. Einstein replaced Newton. Uh, scientific reasoning is the story of a theory that was very good, but later was overthrown by new facts. And uh, science deniers don't seem to understand that. They think that science should be like deductive logic, where you can prove it, and then science comes to a halt. And and I think that that's one of the main barriers, in fact, to what they do. And this is what I talk to science deniers about, about their reasoning, about their strategy. So I'll point out when they're cherry picking 
or when they're being inconsistent or when they're engaging in a conspiracy theory. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, even thinking about sometimes shifting the burden of proof as well onto the scientists to prove something that uh, scientists should not be proving to dissuade the science denier, whether that's well, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Burden of proof. Hmm. Because they, they they will hear that and think, yeah, they have to prove it to me. Now, if you try to shift the quote unquote burden of proof and say, well, no, you prove to me why global warming isn't happening or prove to me that the earth is flat, they'll say, oh, I don't have to do that, you know, or 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 they'll they'll offer some evidence. But then when you pick a hole in it, they'll just move to something else, which is, again, illogical, inconsistent. But it, it's very frustrating to speak with them because what you ultimately determine is that nothing will convince them. They, they, their beliefs are not based on facts, and so they can't be replaced by facts, uh, overthrown by facts, new facts. And one of the main questions that I use when I speak with science deniers is I'll ask them, what evidence could prove you wrong? You know, I'll, I'll, what, what, if your belief is actually evidential, empirical, then there has to be some fact that, if it were true, would cause you to give up your belief. And that causes them usually to think for a minute. They've almost never heard that question. And I think that that gets to the nub of how scientists reason, because every scientist can tell you, yes, if I found this, I would give up my theory. That's why they do experiments, because they're often looking for that negative result, which will overthrow theirs or someone else's theory. Science deniers don't do that. If you, if a science denier gives you something that they think is a fact and you blow it out of the water, they'll say, oh, okay, but what about, and they'll move to something else. So it's, it's what in the United States they call whack-a-mole, right? You, you go to one mole hole and you whack it down and then the mole pops up in another hole. It's, the, mm. it, it's impossible to convince them in that way. And this leads uh, quite nicely to my next question on how science deniers are different from people who can be science hesitant, for example, uh, or being on the fence about some subject or people who are not really caring about, about something and being a bit more apathetic and therefore not taking steps to mitigate, for example, climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are really two questions there. I'll, I'll come back to the caring one. A, a certain degree of skepticism is healthy because, I mean, look, scientists are skeptics. But what scientists recognize is that you're not being scientific if you say nothing could ever convince me, right? So scientists are, Carl Sagan said it best, that scientists have to be both open-minded and skeptical. They have to be willing to consider new evidence and new theories, but skeptical that it's true until they've tested it. So scientists work on the basis of warrant, right? They're not proof, but how much evidence do you have? And is it sufficient for you to, to change your belief, to hold your belief uh, rationally? And so when, when you talk about hesitancy, let's talk about people who are vaccine hesitant. I think it's perfectly appropriate for people, especially in this misinformation age where they go to the internet and you know, type in, are, you know, is the COVID vaccine safe? 
And the first five hits they get might be fake websites, which say that, no, it's not. It's perfectly legitimate for them to have questions, you know, to even to be skeptical. But then the, the issue now is what they do next. Okay. So if they then look for a reliable information source, like their physician, um, or, you know, WebMD or, you know, something else that, that's, that's reliable, then they can, uh, you know, the CDC, then they can um, reasonably have their questions answered. So it, it's not that people who are hesitant, it's not the fact that they have questions that is a problem. What's the problem is this, someone slips over from hesitancy to denial when they start to answer those questions with unreliable information, when they mm. stop believing the reliable sources and they start believing the fake experts, okay? And sometimes what happens, uh, for instance, is they'll go to a convention of science deniers, which happen. Um, and at these conventions, the hesitant become deniers because all of a sudden they're up on the stage are conspiracy theorists telling them false information about vaccines, for instance, that, you know, the CDC was uh, lying to the public because they were paid off by the, you know, National Institute of Medicine or something, you know, they'll come up with some crazy, uh, uh, untrue um, hypothesis. Uh, and then the people in the audience believe it. And then they become deniers. And I saw this at the Flat Earth Convention, and it goes on at climate change, anti-climate change conventions, anti-vax conventions. Uh, when they get people who are questioning together in one room, that's when they become radicalized because belief is really about identity. Science deniers don't believe what they believe because it makes sense. They believe what they believe because they trust the other people around them and they find community and identity through that group. And that is the very dangerous thing when people slip over. Um, now, I can say a little bit about caring if you want me to, or, or maybe you want to follow up on that or, or just move on. It's it's fine. Um, this is very, very interesting, especially, yeah, uh, about what you say about people going over to science denialism if yeah. they are uh, looking for community. So do yes. you think it's... Uh, the vulnerable populations as well are in in more of a very bad place when they're being targeted, for example? It's, it's a great question because, and I wish I could answer that. I wish there were more scientific studies on this. I know that psychologists are studying this right now. There's a um, psychologist down in Texas named Ashley Landrum who's studying flat earthers. And, and there, I know there are other psychologists out there who are studying other science deniers. And nobody has really come to a, what to me is a, a, you know, a conclusion that blows me away, kind of the profile of a science denier. Because what I see when I talk to them is that they come from everywhere. They are sometimes rather intelligent people. They don't have to be stupid people. Some are, some aren't. But and in fact, so, so there's some evidence that people who are a little educated are even better science deniers because they know how to defend their arguments better, right? Hmm. They they know how to um, gather data that tries to push back. 
So, so it seems to me now, it just, this is completely unscientific. Okay. <laughs> but it seemed to me when I was at the flat earth convention, that quite a number of the people that I spoke with had some sort of um, thing go wrong in their life. At some mm. point, they were traumatized by uh, 9-11 or a health crisis or a personal crisis that caused them to question, to, to have a, a break in their faith, their lack of, in their trust in other people. And once they stopped trusting the people around them, they began to stop trusting everyone. And sometimes that's called going down the rabbit hole. They would, you know, uh, and, and I, and I heard more than one flat earther say, and, and not in an apologetic way, but in a, a way of discovery, an epiphany almost, that once they realized, for instance, that 9-11 was an inside job, which of course it's not, but once they thought that, then they started to question um, chemtrails from planes and whether the Sandy Hook shooting was real and whether the earth was flat, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it seems to me a very ripe hypothesis to ask the very question that you're asking, which is, has there been some sort of uh, push for them in that direction? Some sort of a, um, and I'm not talking about a psychotic break. I'm talking mm -hmm. about a, a crisis of faith, a crisis of trust in their fellow human beings to tell them the truth that makes them look for community elsewhere. And if you're looking for community elsewhere, uh, you can find it. And sometimes the people that you find are liars because the problem is not with science denial is not just that there's this audience of people who believe it. It's that there are people out there who want them to believe it. People who are creating the disinformation. You know, I talked earlier about the people on stage at the anti-vax conventions. They're they want the audience to believe what they're saying, but then you have to ask yourself why. Is it because they have a monetary interest or an ideological interest or a religious interest or a political interest? If you really dig behind science denial, what you find is that there is disinformation that is created by people who have something to gain by other people believing what they have to say. And the shocking thing is that there aren't that many of them, um, it, but it gets amplified on social media. And so, you know, one liar can affect hundreds, if not thousands of other people and convert them. There, there was a study in, uh, reported on an NPR the other day that 65% um, of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people, 12 mm -hmm. Um, that's not that many people, but, you know, so, so just a few people who are, you know, maybe they believe their own propaganda, maybe they don't, but they have something that they want other people to believe. Now, look, modern science denial started with the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies, not wanting, um, wanting to fight the idea that cigarette smoking caused cancer. And so they hired a public relations expert who told them to fight the science, which they did. 
They took out full-page newspaper ads and they started the Amer a precursor to the American Tobacco Institute. And they started to try to raise doubt where there really wasn't any. And that was the blueprint for modern science denial. And it's argued brilliantly in Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt. That blueprint was later followed by the people, uh, the, the uh, oil companies who didn't want it to be true that climate change was real because it would interfere with the consumption of fossil fuels. And so they silently funneled money to a lot of the think tanks and researchers and other people who uh, to come up with a propaganda campaign of doubt against the idea that climate change was real. So disinformation is created intentionally by somebody who has an interest at stake. The shorthand version that I often talk about is that science denial isn't an accident, it's a lie. And my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, I'm out there talking to the people who were lied to. But that's not the only way to fight science denial. You can also try to identify the liars, the, the people who are creating the disinformation. And that's really what I'm thinking about next, you know, after this, this book. But How to Talk to a Science Denier is about people who are really in some sense victims of disinformation because maybe they started out with questions and maybe they were at a vulnerable point in their life or not, but they started to believe the liars. This is fascinating on how such a small um, uh, number of really effective uh, people can result in such uh, yeah. sort of grave consequences. It's, it's sad. Similar to those uh, domino sculptures that if you push one stone, it uh, unfolds into the beautiful picture. But I think here, what we see is just unfolding into complete uh, mess and disaster. That's that's true. Um, look at the example of uh, COVID denial. Um, it didn't have to be that way. Uh, I think that for whatever reason, Donald Trump felt that um, COVID would uh, derail his presidency, that he would be blamed for it. And so he wanted to pretend that it wasn't a very big deal, uh, claimed that it could be cured in various hoax ways, uh, said that it would disappear like a miracle. And now I read, uh, and he's no longer president, but now I read in the, uh, the latest Washington Post poll that uh, half of Republicans have said that they will not get the COVID vaccine. Um, so that's his legacy. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people died because of that form of science denial. One person with a megaphone can do a horrible amount of damage. So why is it important to directly engage with science deniers? Well, uh, it, I think it's important to engage with them because it's possible to change their mind. Um, and this was shown in a paper in Nature Human Behavior uh, two years ago, summer of 2019, by uh, researchers named Cornelia Betch and Philip Schmid. Um, and they provided empirical evidence to show that you could, using this, you remember the five steps that I talked about earlier? That mm -hmm. using that, that, those techniques, that you could talk to science deniers and sometimes convince them that they had been lied to and to change their beliefs. And that, that to me is fascinating because it means that it is possible to change people's mind with facts. You just have to go about it in the right way. And, you know, th there was an earlier 
study, which was later uh, not able to, to replicate this finding, that said that there was a such thing called a backfire effect, that no, no, you can't talk to people about facts, because if you do, it'll just make them hold their beliefs, their mistaken beliefs, even more strongly. Well, that finding, finding couldn't be replicated. And Betch and Schmidt were one of the people who showed that it couldn't, but there were others. And you can change some people's mind with facts. Again, you just have to be careful how you go about it. And and by the way, that's something that I write about in my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, because, and again, this goes beyond the evidence, uh, which is funny for me to say, because I have so much respect for science, but there just aren't good studies on this. Um, what's very important in talking to a science denier is that you don't yell at them or disrespect them or insult them. Just like you don't shove facts down their throat, you listen, you show them patience and respect and empathy. That's the way that if anything is going to work, that's what works. Uh, Betts and Schmidt didn't show that. They, they had a script with the five steps, but I got fascinated with their study and thought, well, you know, they're doing this in the lab, but most science deniers are, you know, out there in the world and may they're not just they haven't just heard the recent message of you know a false fact some of them have been marinating in it for 10 years can you mm. use this method that Betts and Schmid have face to face with hardcore science deniers and i discovered that you can but it has to be delivered in the right way with patience respect empathy and listening and interesting discovery that same methodology is used to deprogram people from cults. That same method is used to occasionally talk people out of the Ku Klux Klan or other white supremacist organizations. So this is not something that I uh, discovered, but this is something that I'm fascinated with um, its possibilities in use for science deniers. A lot of scientists will say, oh, it's not worth talking to these people and they'll walk away. But Betch and Schmid showed that it is worth talking to these people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can convince them. And I'm trying to create an army of people who are willing to have hard conversations with people who disagree with them. Because in my book, I show what you would need to do to be able to have conversations that are effective. They don't always work. In fact, they often don't work. But another thing that's important to remember is that it's it's unrealistic to expect that you can change somebody's mind on the spot, especially if you're a stranger. People get their mind changed by people who they trust over a long period of time. So, you know, this this again, the script that Betch and Schmidt used was was brilliant, but they were doing it online with strangers, you know, with a, for immediate conversion. And it worked sometimes even then. And so I thought, how much better might it work if we did it face-to-face -face with people that we trust over a long period of time? And I, I don't have results to show for it yet in a scientific sense. I'm hoping that maybe I'll be able to partner with some scientists to actually test this and study this as a methodology. Because just imagine if we knew that we didn't have to run away from people who disagreed with us, but if we approached them as a human being and had some empathy because they've been lied to, um, we could maybe get them to change their mind. I think it would be a better world.
Yeah, for sure. And this is absolutely crucial. And um, I think I'm going to ask the same question that uh, most people in your audience ask you. So how would you go about talking to a size denier, specifically if it's somebody close to you, like your maybe relative or a close friend? Yeah. The important thing to remember is that you cannot convince somebody to change their mind. You can merely create an opportunity for them to change their own mind. So don't insult them. Don't uh, get angry at them. Uh, one very effective method is to simply is to, to show them love, if you love them, and let them try to convince you. Ask them questions. Say, well, now why do you believe that? Or you know, if that were true, wouldn't you see this other thing? Or what's your evidence for that? So, so, you know, sometimes the most effective way to get somebody to change their mind is to try to get them to change your mind and fail, because then they'll realize all the mistakes that they're making and the things that they can't answer. One of the best conversations I had at the Flat Earth Convention was with a, a young man who was extremely intelligent uh, guest speaker um, on the stage trying to tell flat earthers how to convert other people to flat earth. And the mm. kind of tactics that he was using were the same kind of tactics that I was using. And I invited him out to dinner and we had dinner and spoke for two hours. And I was trying to convert him and he was trying to convert me. And it was just a very scintillating conversation for me because, you know, there were, there were moments when I would, say, you know, well, well, try to try to convince me or, you know, why would you believe that? Or, you know, if that were true, wouldn't this other thing be true? The, the, the best luck I had was when I said to him, is there anything that could convince you that you were wrong? And he came up with two different things that he said would. But then when we pursued them, he backed off of both of them and, and changed his mind, which I think left him in a state where he felt, um, confused, right? Because if his belief was actually based on evidence, then why wasn't he able to say what evidence would convince him? So, and I should have followed up. I should have taken his email and followed up and maybe I could have convinced him. Um, I didn't, but, um, but I felt like I at least built some trust with him because we sat down and had dinner face to face for two hours and I took him seriously and I listened and showed him some respect. As I said, I did respect him. He, I think that his beliefs were mistaken, but he was he was a very intelligent, well-spoken, impressive person. Yeah, and that's what I find really helpful about the way you frame uh, this uh, problem that uh, the roots of uh, of this uh, of the science of denialism or some different um, or denialism or some other uh, other topics perhaps or uh, fields is due to the way of thinking which can be flawed and then from mm -hmm. there you can approach it much more calmly <laughs> so you don't get angry at people but you really right. try to understand and, yep. and then go from there so what discoveries along the journey to writing how to talk to a science denier surprised you the most oh so many things um i i guess one of the things that surprised me the most was in my research. Um, science deniers will often say, if you present them with evidence, they'll say, well, have you seen it? You know, they don't want to hear 
about some discovery. They don't want to hear about some discovery from another person if you haven't personally experienced it. So, for instance, if I said to a flat earther um, that there are flights over Antarctica, which they don't think is a continent. They think that Antarctica is an ice wall spread out around the perimeter of the earth to keep the water from falling off. But I would say, oh. no, but there are flights over Antarctica. I know it's a shock. I'd say there are flights over Antarctica. And they'd say, well, have you been on that flight? And so I wanted to have firsthand experience with climate change, which you know these days is as easy as going outside. But I got interested in the idea of um, the countries that were much uh, further along uh, from suffering uh, from climate change than the United States. So I went to the Maldives and to study coral death and to talk to people in the Maldives about what they were going through. And while I was on the boat uh, with the marine biologist and we were studying coral death, there was a certain point at which I had, you know, had enough uh, snorkeling. I'm, I'm not a strong swimmer and I had seen what I came to see. And my wife wanted to see the turtles. And so she went out with the marine biologists and they, you know, were diving uh, uh, next to the boat and saw the turtles. And I stayed in the boat and talked to the crew who were uh, about 17 or 18 year old Maldivian uh, people. And mm -hmm. um, they, once their boss, the marine biologist was in the water, they started to talk to me. And I wanted to talk to them about climate change. And you know, I said, do you, what difference has this made for you? You know, you, of course, you must have known about it, not just in your daily life, but you must have learned about it in school. You know, the, the, you've got a good education system, uh, the very high literacy rate in the Maldives. Um, you, so you must have all learned about this in school. And what he said to me, the captain, 1718, was heartbreaking. He said, oh, sir, outside the Maldives, no one cares. So I'm going to come back to your issue that you asked earlier about caring. That stuck with me like a splinter um, until I got back to the United States and I started to talk to um, the coal miners in rural Pennsylvania about climate change. And I, I set up this forum with the help of some friends where we were going to have coal miners come in and you know talk about their views on climate change. And I was prepared for the idea that some of them were going to be climate deniers and some not. When we actually started the forum, it turned out that of the three coal miners there, um, and there are a bunch of other people, including some press, um, they, they all believed that climate change was real. And in a way, that, that, was, that was surprising to me. That was shocking to me. And I asked the question, but if you know it's real, how do you continue to do what you do for a living every day, knowing that you're hurting the environment? And one of the coal miners said, you've got to understand that coal miners are fatalistic. He said, every day I go down in that mine is a day that I could die. And I do it because I have to feed my family. And so, yes, I'm worried about climate change, but I'm also worried about my own life and my family. And I take those sorts of risks every day. The implication being that if he would risk his own life, climate change was, you know, not even in the same category of risk, but he was willing to, to risk his life. And that got me back to those Maldivian fishermen, because there was a way in which they were the same. They were both victims of 
climate change. They were both victims of the coal industry in a way, though the, the coal miners might not have put it that way. But what was fascinating to me was this issue of caring, that the Maldivian fishermen and the coal miners both cared, right? The, the, the coal miners were older men who had families, in some case, grandchildren, and they cared about the issue. And then that got me to thinking, but caring isn't enough, is it? Mm. Because you can care. I mean, forget about the people who don't care, right? The people who maybe work for the oil company and are making a lot of money off climate denial or the people who work for the cigarette companies, you know, et cetera. So some people know that it's not true, but they really don't care. But it made me think that the problem is this it's deeper than just changing people's mind about facts. Because here I was in Pennsylvania talking to these people who already agreed with me on the facts, and I still couldn't get them to stop being coal miners. And it wasn't that they didn't care either. And so that that was a big eye-opener for me because, you know, I mean, you, you asked what surprised me. It was that there are so many levels to this problem. People, including me at the beginning of this project, thought that, well, it's just a matter of changing someone's mind, but it's not. It's such a complex issue that it's it's not just a matter of changing somebody's mind about the facts or even their identity. It's a matter of, and it's not even a matter of getting them to care, though that's also important. I think ultimately it's a matter of institutional structures that help the liars have so much power. And so I'm I'm increasingly concerned with the people who are telling the lies that the science deniers believe, the lies that keep the coal miners in the mines, the ones that are wiping out the homeland of the Maldivian fishermen and you know roasting the planet for the rest of us. Though that's where I think pressure needs to be born. Um, maybe my next book will be about that, about how to deal with the people who are creating the information, the disinformation about science. So now maybe that's not a book. I mean, I don't have much time, do I? Uh, maybe it'll be a long article or something, but that's what I'm thinking about these days. That's So that's something that surprised me in writing the book. And this always happens is when I finish a book, I get a bunch of new ideas. Yeah, that's great. So having identified these uh, these sort of issues and topics, how hopeful are you about the prospects of bringing more real science to more people and engaging with the science deniers? I, I'm hopeful that we can reach the science deniers and that I can bring this message to a large number of people. That's the point of the book. I wrote uh, an article called... Uh, before the book was published, I wrote an article called uh, Calling All Physicists, where I was trying to get physicists interested in pushing back against flat earthers. You know, I, I think that scientists need to be energized to and learn how to communicate with these folks. And that's one audience for my book, because I, I think that we could do a world of good if we went out uh, and did this. What I worry about now is whether there's time. Because what I saw with COVID is that even when our lives are at stake immediately, there are still deniers. 
So, mm. you know, some people have said that COVID denial was um, you know, like a 60 second version of climate change, right? Because it had to do with this global risk that, you know, to everyone's life. And, you know, we have to do something about it right away. But if people won't even take a vaccine to save their own life, can we really get them to stop consuming fossil fuels to save the planet and the lives of other people in other countries and in the future? I'm, I'm not sure that there's time uh, to do that. Um, so I, I feel that push. Um, it, it, I'm on the eve of launching my new book. You know, I've, I've just published this book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, and I, and I believe in it. But I am woefully aware that there's more to this story, that there's more to do than just go out and talk to science deniers. Talking to science deniers is a start. Some of the science deniers that we talk to are people in power who can do things, like people in Congress in the United States. Um, so, you know, th this is all moving in the right direction. But I am, as I say, increasingly worried that we're running out of time and that this approach that I'm recommending is just too slow and, and too many deniers out there to reach all of them in time. And that we, we have to bring other forces to bear. And I'm not quite sure what those other uh, things are, but um, this, is, this is a huge problem and I'm doing my best on it. And there's so many other people that are working on it as well. But for whatever reason, I feel this obligation to do this kind of work because, you know, who would have ever thought that a philosopher would have something to say that might be important to, you know, change the world. And that's how I feel that, you know, goes back to the reading the encyclopedia when I was a kid, I want to make a difference. I want to help people. Uh, I want to help, you know, my fellow citizens and citizens of the world against what I see as one of the main threats. Um, and uh, that's science denial. And by the way, it's not just science denial anymore, because I think that science denial paved the way for reality denial, uh, a much larger form of denial, which I wrote about in a book called Post-Truth uh, when Donald Trump came into office. Because when you see a politician like him who says that his inauguration crowd was bigger than Obama's when a picture shows that it's not, or who argues that it didn't rain on his speech when you know that it did. He, he's not just denying scientific facts, he's denying all facts. And ultimately in his last days in office, he used it to deny that he lost an election. And that led to a violent attack on the US Capitol and might have, but for, you know, a few brave police officers led to mass slaughter of members of Congress or even the lack of certified that election. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, so, I mean, literally lives are at stake through denial. And it's unfortunately, the problem is now worse. It's not just science denial. It's reality denial. It's fact denial. It's truth denial. And, um, this is the work that I want to do. I, I don't want to just write for other scholars. I want to write for the public because I feel like um, this is so important. And I look at my colleagues like Jason Stanley, who wrote a book called uh, How Fascism Works. 
And I want to do that kind of work. I want to do work that inspires and helps to make a change with a problem in the world. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's such an such an important work, even though it's so, so difficult, like like you describe. So then I suppose then, can you say that you have definitively figured out what do philosophers actually do? <laughs> what do philosophers do? Um, I I have great love and respect for philosophy. It is it is wonderful, and I'm so proud to be a philosopher. But the kind of philosophy that I'm most energized by now is what's called public philosophy. It's taking the analytical tools that we use in philosophy, not just to talk about words and language or truth and reality just for one another, but to apply it to practical real-world problems. Uh, there is... Um, a role and and I'm and I'm very interested in problems in logic and metaphysics and epistemology and all of and ethics all of the classic fields in philosophy but I I feel especially these days that philosophers have an obligation to use their smarts and skills to in the application to real world problems um I sometimes have said unkindly that it's as if philosophers were playing crossword puzzles. And I think that's, that's unkind, but in some cases, um, perhaps accurate where, you know, if someone has tenure and they're interested in some particularly narrow question that five other experts in the world are interested in, that's fine, but that's not for me. Um, I need to, understand that the work that I'm doing is going to have wider application. Now, in science, there's such a thing as basic research, where people are just interested in things for the sake of being interested, and it ends up with microchips or nylon or radar, you know, it can change the world. I haven't seen so much of that in philosophy. You know, philosophers are still obsessed with um, questions of... uh, color or identity over time or uh, justification. And, you know, these are all, and I don't mean to denigrate that work because it's all important philosophical work. It's just the world. Look, if, if philosophers are interested in truth, the world will never need us more than it needs us right now. Truth. They're talking about it on CNN. They're talking about it on MSNBC. They're talking about it in Congress. The world needs philosophers right now. I think it's time that we uh, put on our boots and went out to help. At least that's the way I feel. Oh, I love this idea of applied philosophy to help make a real change uh, with tangible effects. It's it's what I like to do. I'm uh, I'm currently editing a book with uh, two uh, colleagues on uh, public philosophy, the the uh, an anthology, really the first book the. Uh, the Wiley Blackwell uh, Guide to uh, Public Philosophy. And uh, we're really proud of it and hope that that's going to make a difference for philosophy as well. That's my other project that I'm working on right now while I'm um, uh, just finished uh, uh, writing and uh, publishing How to Talk to a Science Denier and getting ready for, for publicity for that. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So as you described, you're already working on this project. And uh, what else is in store for you? Um, in addition to the disinformation project, which I don't know, maybe another book, it may be something else. Uh, I'm writing a new novel. Uh, I am, uh, I, I wrote a, 
uh, a thriller novel, uh, a philosophical novel, a few years back and had it published. And I and I loved to be able to write about. Um, I, I love to be able to make things up. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I'm so obsessed with the idea of truth and verification and justification, um, and and the the high stakes of the philosophical work that I'm doing. And it was just a break for me to be able to write a novel, which, you know, it's fiction, it's full of lies, right? And um, because it's thriller fiction, there's, you know, sex and violence. And it was just a, it's the kind of book that I enjoy reading when I'm on vacation and, and I enjoyed writing it. And so I'm, I'm writing a new book, um, which is about a philosophy professor who has a, a crisis in his life that leads him to question uh, whether life is worth living. And he discovers, um, he's an ethicist, uh, and he discovers a redemption through a series of ethical crimes. This is a question that always comes up in class when I'm teaching ethics to my students over at Harvard. Um, is it possible to commit an ethical crime? Uh, what's the difference between what's legal and what's ethical? And um, one day in class, I got an idea for a book and uh, or I got an idea and I thought, how am I going to write about this? And I thought, I don't want to write about this as an article. I want to do this as a novel. And so that's my my new novel. So uh, I've I've always got a lot of projects going on at once. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy that freedom to be able to work on uh, on many different things. Uh, usually, if one project isn't going well, I can turn to the other, but um, it it keeps me uh, it keeps me engaged, and uh, I I love what I do. I I love it that I have um, done what I set out to do when I was a kid, and I don't I don't think many people can say that. Uh, it's maybe for the world to judge how successful I've been at it, but I've 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 ended up going to college going to graduate school and working on something that I think is important and that I think can make the world better. And I don't think anybody can ask for more than that. Yeah, for sure. And the project sounds uh, really, really interesting. I, I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I, <laughs> I, I often feel like uh, it's, it's not enough. It's not even close to enough for the crisis that we're facing. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? Oh, uh, the book is available uh, on Amazon.com um, or really any online retailer. It's also going to be in uh, Barnes and Noble or um, any, uh, I think, independent bookshops as well. So it, it should be available. And if readers are interested in finding out more about me or my work um, and also where I'm going to be doing uh, speaking because I go out and, and do public speaking events and, and I also do other publicity events if they want to listen to those. They can go to my website, leemcintyrebooks.com, and they can uh, find uh, all of that, all those links and material. And there are also links for how to buy the book uh, on my website as well. And uh, uh, there's also very importantly a contact uh, button there. So if readers want to write me um, an email, uh, I'm I'm happy to receive that. I I get fan mail. I get hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I get crank mail sometimes. And and some of it's quite touching. Some of it's a little scary, but but some of it's quite 
uh, uh, fascinating, and and I I usually uh, try to uh, try to respond. So if readers have a question or an observation, or they you know they want to reach out, uh, please go to my website and look for the contact button and uh, and reach out to me. I'd, I'd enjoy that. It's part of doing public philosophy, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for such a thoughtful and uh, really in-depth discussion. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and your great questions. Thank you for having me on.